Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, open with me to the book of Matthew. Chapter 5, as we continue to make our way through the Beatitudes in Christ's Sermon on the Mount, you may recall um, in our study of Matthew, it was John the Baptist, as the forerunner, was preaching in the wilderness that the Messiah's kingdom was at hand and this, there was a need for repentance. Uh, repentance of sin was the only appropriate response for those wishing entrance into the kingdom that was at hand. And there's, thus, John established a baptism of repentance. Uh, Jesus also began his ministry teaching and preaching the same message that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And as such, repentance was the only appropriate response to those wishing entrance into his kingdom. What no one knew then was the lengthy interlude that was the church age. That there was a, actually going to be two comings of Messiah before the establishment of his earthly kingdom. And you may recall John the Baptist in particular even believed and knew that said kingdom came with wrath. He said to the those religious leaders coming for the baptism of repentance, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He very tightly organized his understanding of Messiah's coming, attached with the establishment of a kingdom and wrath. And we see that throughout the Old Testament very plainly. The, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, as we get to this in the study of this Gospel of Matthew, is the greatest teaching with regard to what genuine repentance looks like, which is obviously an, an important reality because both John and Jesus kept saying, repent, because the kingdom of heaven's at hand. So repentance is obviously the, the one thing, the requirement, which both of these men said was necessary for entrance into the kingdom. And here in the Sermon on the Mount, we see uh, with regard to said repentance, a, a an, some color commentary on what it looks like in the life of those who come to Christ. And the staggering impact that such repentance makes on a person's life. We see this most clearly in these Beatitudes, the early portion, the first 12 verses of chapter 5 in Matthew's gospel. And this is why the sermon and teaching of Jesus uh, isn't something to be simply read I think a lot of people perhaps have read over the Sermon on the Mount or have read through the Beatitudes, but this uh, teaching of Christ is something that must be reckoned with. It's something that we need to read in such a way to where we ask ourselves pointed questions of, is this true of me? Is this repentance that I'm claiming described and defined by Jesus in the same way that I'm understanding repentance to be. Because the Bible indeed teaches us that one day soon God will uh, completely reclaim a, an earthly domain through the establishment of Christ's earthly kingdom. It's going to be at his second coming. We refer to that as a, a millennial kingdom that's, that's established initially that then is inaugurates into an eternal state 
of his perpetual forever kingdom. And we know that those who have become his disciples through repentance and faith will dwell in that earthly kingdom with Christ forever and ever. I think we were just singing a song about this. Isn't that good news? That's worthy of the amen. Let it be so. And as such, a proper understanding of the Beatitudes should be just as important and desirous for people today interested in coming into the kingdom as it's ever been. Because the requirement for entrance into this glorious eternal kingdom has always been the same and it will never change. And as we've seen, for those who come to Christ through repentance by faith are surely, as it states very clearly here in Matthew's gospel, the most blessed, the most happy people to ever live on planet earth. Amen and amen. And what we know thus far through verse 5 regarding what genuine repentance looks like is that ones who become God's children and the inheritors of this kingdom whenever it's established are those who are gentle and submissive, meek of soul before the Lord. They have a, they've been trained, they are continually being trained to have a glad submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that as a result of becoming, as we saw, poor in spirit, of mourning, of recognizing that we have sinned against the only true and living God and we have mourned over our sins. We recognize the poorness of our spirit that we are in desperate need and there's nothing, absolutely nothing we can do to gain his favor. That all of his favor is placed upon and found only in Christ, our Lord, our Savior. And so what is one in need of doing? Metanoia, repenting. Changing our understanding of who Jesus is and calling him Lord and following hard after him. And in following him, we are being equipped and trained to become fishers of men. We saw that in Matthew chapter 4 because he has a program. He has a plan to seek and save that which is lost and he needs the likes of you and me to be ambassadors of his. His disciples who speak the same message that he spoke that call for people everywhere to repent in the same way that he did. And we have a glorious understanding from this sermon on the mount of exactly what that looks like. Now, this morning we're going to pick up on a portion of what repentance looks like that, from my perspective, is gravely missing and gravely misunderstood, it seems, within at least the American Christian culture that we're surrounded with and by today. Notice chapter 5 and look at verse 6 with me. Jesus continued and he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We see here that another blessing that comes by way of genuine repentance is a Genuine spiritual desire to know God and to live in a way that is pleasing to God. This desire, this this hunger, this thirst for righteousness is nothing less than the creation of a new heart given by God by means of the new covenant, which we just spoke of in partaking of the Lord's table. 
It's something that God actually does within the heart of man. He takes a heart of stone and he removes that through repentance and faith in Jesus. He removes hearts of stone and in the new covenant he gives us a heart of flesh and he writes upon our heart his law, upon our hearts, not upon tablets of stone, but upon our heart he gives us new affections and new desires in our hearts to have a glad submission, to have this pursuit, a desire, a pursuit of a Godward life. This is the outward expression of that inner transformation, this hunger, this thirst. And it's this inner transformation that stands in stark contrast to the natural man whose hunger and thirst are primarily to satisfy their own lust, to accomplish their own goals, and to satisfy their own interests. And they're also sometimes perceptive enough to know that perhaps they need to even tack Jesus along with their other interests too so that they have their fire insurance and get out of hell free card. There seems to be a marked and marketed interest in that kind of understanding of repentance in the American gospel of today. But you can mark it. A perpetual reality for the child of God is the capacity and ability and desire to genuinely hunger and thirst for righteousness, for God himself, to live in a way that is pleasing to him. And when we don't, like Peter, we weep bitterly. We recognize that we've grieved the Holy Spirit. We recognize that we've grieved the holiness of God, and we weep and we repent and we return back to God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this very well. Lloyd-Jones says, this beatitude again follows logically from the previous ones. It is a statement to which all the others lead. It is the logical conclusion to which they come, and it is something for which we should all be profoundly thankful and grateful to God. I do not know of a better test that anyone can apply to himself or herself in this whole matter of the Christian profession than a verse like this. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If it is not, then you had better examine the foundations again. He's saying if a person claims to belong to Christ yet has no hunger, no thirst for righteousness, for living righteously, for putting to death deeds of the flesh, for disciplining ourselves for godliness, for being practitioners of righteousness so that we might get even better still. Lloyd-Jones says rightly that such people have need to examine the foundations of their claim of belonging to Christ. But you know what that's referred to in the American gospel today? That's called legalism. And that's called a works-based righteousness. And it leaves people in a quandary. It leaves people like me who said, well, I walked an aisle and I said a prayer and I did everything that my denomination told me to do. 
completely devoid of a genuine hunger and thirst for righteousness, that didn't matter because I went through the motions and I said the right things and I did what they asked me to do. And after all, if you say that there's anything that needs to follow as a result of that, they would cobble that together as saying, oh, you've added works, you've added works to one's salvation, misunderstanding completely that that's just the fruit that comes from the root. The hunger and the thirst for righteousness is the fruit that comes from the root of genuine repentance. A hunger and thirst for righteousness is that which only God can do when spiritual eyes have been opened and a man or a woman recognizes the poorness of their spirit, that they're completely destitute apart from God, and thus they mourn over their, their poor condition, and they cry out to God, and they say, Oh God, save me from my sins. I need Christ. Therein is the root the gentleness that comes by means of true justification, true indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is a progressive aspect that God continues throughout the course and the life of a, of a man or a woman who's growing in Christ-likeness to become more gentle and more meek as they walk with him. This hunger and this thirst is what God places within us when he removes that old heart and he gives us a, a heart of flesh. We now hunger, thirst for righteousness. Does that mean that we always do that perfectly? Well, absolutely not. But guess what? You can't, you, you could try to remove a hunger and thirst for righteousness, but when God has done this in you, it's there. And so when we sin, we grieve, like just mentioned. But the American gospel has gutted this aspect of what genuine repentance looks like, and it's turned it into a simple confession. And so we seem to have a lot of confessional believers and they're content with saying, hey, I, I repeated the prayer or I, I, I said that I did what my denomination asked me to do. And they said that I don't have to do anything else. Well, isn't it great of God to give us a sermon upon a mount that gives clear instruction as to what repentance looks like because as mentioned that's the only way one can rightly receive entrance into this kingdom that Jesus in his second time is going to establish and so we can kind of forget about the noise of what this church might be saying or that church might be saying and we get to go just right back to the scriptures and we get to say what does the word of God say and we clearly see that God places within those who are truly converted an authentic hunger and thirst for righteousness, to live righteously before God. And so the very obvious and very pointed reality for each of us this morning is that we get to ask ourselves, Lord, is this true of me? Do I actually hunger and thirst for righteousness? And am I a practitioner of righteousness so that I can become better at being a son or daughter of God? Again, Lloyd-Jones rightly says that said person who feels not an interest in hungering and thirsting for righteousness need examine the foundations of their claim of belonging to Christ. After all, it is a natural byproduct of these spiritual foundations. 
of the poorness of spirit, of the mourning over one's sin. It's the natural outgrowth. It's the fruit from that root. A, a, a perpetual desire for sin to be replaced by virtue only comes by means of God, the Holy Spirit. A perpetual desire for disobedience to be replaced by obedience is that which comes by means of a new heart and the Holy Spirit. An eagerness, a hunger, a thirst of the soul. As the deer pants by the water brook, so my soul pants after you, the living God. Only God can make our souls desire to become servants to his word and to his will and have such hunger and thirst. Amen? So perhaps not one of us will leave here this morning without giving due consideration of the inner working of our soul and are we hungering and thirsting for righteousness today. Listen, this is, as I said, such an urgent message in our culture, a culture that does not understand the ancient Eastern culture's meaning and cost of discipleship. When Jesus was calling disciples to himself, there was an understanding, a right understanding, that you were coming to learn and to die. And, and so when you look at the hard teachings of Christ in the Gospels, what we refer to as the hard teachings of Christ, if you don't hate father or mother or family more than me, you're not worthy of me. Some of the hard teachings of Christ, if you don't take up your cross daily and follow after me, you're not worthy of me. Some of the hard teachings of Christ, we'll never understand what that culture, that the, the concept of discipleship within this culture meant. And that's why we sometimes struggle understanding the gospel according to Jesus in our culture today. And for those then and for those today who believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah King of the Jews whose coming was for the establishment of a kingdom, though we're living in that interlude between the two advents, repentance, as defined by the king, was required then and is still required for entrance in his kingdom today. Listen to this quote from, are you all familiar with George Barna? A pollster does a lot of polling amongst so-called uh, Christian community and those within the community of Christianity. He took a, a poll of a thousand uh, young adults who, who had been churched. These weren't uh, young adults who were not churched. These were young adults that grew up in evangelical churches like ours and, um, and then went off to college. He... he put together a survey and he interviewed a thousand of those individuals and from that he came to this conclusion a majority of 20-somethings 61% of today's young adults had been churched at one point during their teen years but they are now spiritually disengaged not actively attending church reading the Bible or praying now I don't know about you but that sure doesn't sound like much spiritual hunger and thirsting for righteousness, if you ask me. And seriously, people would say, well, attending, actively attending church, that doesn't, that, that, that doesn't matter. That, that doesn't have anything to do with being saved. I mean, reading the Bible is, is great, but 
what's that got to do with being saved? Praying is a, it's a good spiritual discipline, but that has nothing to do with being saved. To which I might say, you're absolutely right, 100%. But what is central to being saved is the fact that you get a new heart that now hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And men and women who actually hunger and thirst for righteousness, what do they do? They actively desire to be where God's people are on the Lord's day because they understand where they were when they were poor in spirit and mourning and that God graciously saved them and pulled them from a pit of despond and that they stand in grace and we're not to forsake our assembling together as is the habit of some, but we gather purposefully. That's what a hunger and thirst for righteousness does. It gives you a desire to want to actually be with God's people. Oh, and reading the Bible... Same, same, and then praying, same. How much were you reading the Bible and praying before you got saved? Zero. How much are you reading the Bible and praying now that you've been saved? Zero, but I'm saved. Well, where's that hunger? Where's that thirst? Where's the new heart that God put within you, the new desire to want to be his kid? What about that? What about the Beatitudes and the reality of what genuine repentance actually looks like in the life of the believer. Because this is what's required for entrance into the eternal kingdom. is genuine salvation. And those who are truly saved, God starts working. I think it was Paul himself in Philippians 2. I don't have this passage, but Philippians 2, 12 and 13, one of my, two of my favorite verses. It's where we are told that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because, why? Because it's God who's at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that good news? God didn't just save us and leave us alone. God is at work in us. How? Because he gave us a new heart and an abiding Holy Spirit that will be with us forever. You can't fake this stuff. It's either a reality in the life of the man or woman claiming to know God, or it's not. And 61% is a pretty poor percentage, even of just a small portion. A thousand is not a large portion, but that's a very high percentage. Six in ten have left the church and are spiritually disengaged and have no hunger and thirst, it would seem, to live righteous lives. Lloyd-Jones says such individuals have need to examine the foundations of their profession of faith to make certain they're truly in the faith. Peter, the apostle, he said the exact same thing. Notice what Peter said in 2 Peter 1. And one of the reasons I think it's important for us to linger over this a little bit and to kind of look at what Peter says here is because this informs our evangelism. This needs to be instructive with regard to our evangelism. There was a big movement that went out that just said, you know, you gave out the four spiritual laws. You know, God loves you, has a great plan for your life. Um, I love you, and you go love your neighbor. I can't remember what they were now. But we need to make certain that that when we are doing evangelism, people need to understand a poorness of spirit, and they need to mourn over sin. Therein is the gift of God's drawing of breaking us to the breaking our hearts down to recognize that we need Christ. Listen to how Peter says it. 
Simon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, the thing I want to point out here for you just to make a quick observation of is, do you see from, from what Peter says, does Peter and the other apostles have some kind of special salvation that's different than the rest of our salvation? Well, he says absolutely not, other than the fact that they were apostles, those who were handpicked by the Lord. He's a slave, a doulos, just like the rest of us. And notice he says, to those, that, that would include us, who have received the same kind of faith as ours. And it comes by the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Same for same. In other words, the same kind of saving faith that Peter and the other apostles had is the same kind of faith uh, that anybody's going to have, including you and me, and it comes by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Same for same. Verse 2 and 3, notice. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the fullness of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, I want you to notice here in verse 3, notice, our ability to hunger and thirst for righteousness begins with God. Look at, again, verse 3. Pay close attention to these words. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. God's divine power is the source of life change, not our own strength. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness has nothing to do with our own strength and power and everything to do with what God did on the inside of us at the time of salvation, which is the imputation of a new heart in accordance with a new covenant. And as we saw from verse 1, it's by the righteousness, the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Are you seeing this? This is why you've heard me say to you on many occasions, it's impossible to fake Christianity for a, length of, for a lengthy amount of time. Because the will to do that which is contrary to the fallen, corrupt sin nature that we have by birth in Adam is impossible to overcome over an extended period of time just through human will and effort. You can pull your bootstraps up as hard as you want to try to live a righteous life, but your sin nature will overtake that and devour that. It will eat your, that lunch, its, its note that came with it, spit it up and chew it out, whatever it does. It won't work. See also the parable of the soils. Soils that fell on the shallow ground, it, it, it grew up quick, it had no root, and it was scorched and withered and vanished. Or it fell among the rocky soils, it, it grew up real fast, it looked real great, but it was choked out by the worries of the world and deceitfulness of riches and was no more. You can't fake this forever. Divine power is required, as Peter says here, and those who have a faith like Peter and the rest of the apostles, same for same with us, um, do so because God has given us new hearts. His divine power has granted us, as it says right there, everything pertaining to life and godliness. Do you think that perhaps God's divine power that grants us everything pertaining to life and godliness 
might somehow correspond with the fact that we hunger and thirst for righteousness? I do. Again, Lloyd-Jones rightly said, if we don't see within our soul a hunger and thirst for righteousness, we need to examine the foundations of our confession. And again, here's why I look at the end of verse 3. Through the full knowledge, through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Justification by grace through faith alone gives us a full knowledge of what genuine repentance looks like. A perfect knowledge or a full knowledge? We grow into the fullness of our understanding of what it means to be called by his glory and his excellence. And we do so. We're blessed to have the word of God in our mother tongue. And when we read the Beatitudes, we see we have full knowledge because we've read and we've seen what genuine repentance looks like. Amen? And this is the place from which our Godward focus, our Godward desires, our desire to be pleasing to God in everything we do comes from is his divine nature. In verse 4, notice he says, for by these, for by these his own glory and excellence, by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. And it's the promises here is, is in a plurality. So in my mind, I'm thinking specifically of the Abrahamic covenant and the new covenant here. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. The church has been grafted into the precious promises of the rich root of the nation of Israel. The Abrahamic covenant where through the seed of Abraham one would come who would be a blessing to the world, namely Jesus Christ and the new covenant, which we've just talked about several times today, the inauguration of that through the blood of Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. Through these precious and magnificent promises, he's granted this to us, so that by them you may become partakers of that divine nature. Having noticed, having what? What happens when, with genuine repentance? Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Escaped is from a Greek word that says to become safe from danger by avoiding or escaping. Don't you love this? Safe from danger. What does the adversary in the old nature desire for us to do? It wants us to eat handfuls of dirt, death, and sin always leads to what? Death. It says that he came to steal, kill, and destroy. It's the father of lies. He's been such from the beginning. Genuine repentance keeps us safe from danger, and that by means of having escaped. What are we escaping? The corruption, and here's where the danger comes from, the corruption that's in this world by lusts. This is the very contradiction that we see within the American gospel that says that we can still kind of live according to our worldly lustful desires and kind of have our cake and eat it too. And the, ah, yeah, I really don't, I don't always, I don't, I know I shouldn't do that. It's not that I don't want to do it. I know I shouldn't do it. I know I shouldn't. And there seems to be a greater hunger and thirst for the lusts of, that come by the corruption that's in the world than perhaps a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. And therein is a, is a place where we, the individual, we have to look into the mirror that is God's word and we have to say, 
Who do I see when I look into the word of God? Do I truly see a man or a woman who's hungering and thirsting after God? Or do I see a man or a woman who's trying not to go to hell and just wants a ticket, a free get out of hell free ticket by saying the right words and doing the right things? That's what we have to do. That's what everybody has to do. Everybody has to come face to face with the reality that someday you're going to be face to face with God. And Christ has graciously given us an understanding of what it looks like to hunger and thirst for Righteousness. Listen, the most basic understanding here is that genuine repentance was our means of escape from this world of lust and corruption. And that in accordance with the promises of God to freely grant us new natures and hearts that would now hunger and thirst instead for his righteousness to the glory and praise of God, the giver of the free gift. And by means of this new hunger and thirst for righteousness, we desire to live Godward lives. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And we are in this world, we're not of this world. Amen? And we are those who take refuge in him. The world is assaulting everything that's righteous and good. In just 250 years of this experiment known as the United States of America, what started out as a a bastion of trying to be a place for the building of the church and the proclamation of the gospel, that lasted for a period of time, maybe not perfectly, and everybody's got, oh, but this, and we always have the that's, and everybody's got their, you know, well, what the, you know, whatever. I'm tired. Now you're, sometimes you get just tired of hearing that. Listen, the reality is, is when we look at this culture that we're in today, what we're seeing is that over 250 years, you can't fake Christianity forever. And that God never said that America was going to be a Christian nation to begin with. It's just a place that Christians perhaps moved to so that they could freely experience the worship of King Jesus. <clears throat> you see that there is a difference And how blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They take refuge in him. Amen. Verse 5, and i got to hurry now. For this very reason also, applying all diligence, Peter says, in your faith. Notice what he says here. Supply. Supply moral excellence. Well, I think, if I back up just just a second here. See right here. See this one word right here? Uh, It's this word diligence. Uh, I, I, I think perhaps um, that's where I lost most confessing and nominal Christians was at the word diligence. You see, applying diligence implies effort. It, it implies um, uh, self-governance. Oh, it, it implies one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit that's called self-control, Right? Do we have the embodying Holy Spirit within us as believers? Yes, we do. Can we quench the Spirit? Well, yes, we can. And when we do, we grieve over it, right? But Philippians 1, 6 tells us that he who began that good work in us is going to perfect it. So he ain't going anywhere. He's at work in us to willing to work for his good pleasure. He's not going anywhere. We're children of God. And he's going to perfect it into the day of Christ Jesus. See, there's an, an aspect of spiritual disciplines here that's involved that, again, sometimes um, confessing Christians and nominal Christians like to raise the red flag and say, legalism, you're adding works to salvation. 
to which we say, we're not adding works to salvation. It's a free gift. This is the fruit that comes as a result of it. Because God changed your heart, right? And he gave you a new heart that now hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And so you are now applying diligence in your faith. And you're supplying moral excellence in your faith. And so the the things that you allow your eyes to see on the TV or the movies that you go to or that you don't see and you won't go to because in your faith you're, you're, you're applying moral excellence to that. And in your moral excellence, you're adding knowledge through the reading of God's Word. And in your knowledge, self-control, which comes by means of the Holy Spirit. And in your self-control, perseverance, the very thing that we're called to do all throughout the, the epistles is to persevere in our faith to the end. And in your perseverance, godliness. The very thing we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness as a Godward life is godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness, because as you love God, if you don't love your brother, the love of God's not truly in you. And in your brotherly kindness, love. The greatest of these, he said, is love. This is what we apply diligently in our walk with Christ. We are seeking to grow. We are hungering and thirsting to be God's people. And he says here in verse 8, For if these things are yours, these things, in other words, the, all these things, if you're, if, if you're doing this, Peter says, if these things are yours and are increasing, in other words, you're not being lazy in these things. They're increasing in your life. You're, you're seeking to add more moral excellence to your end knowledge and self-control. and pers- You're perpetually seeking to live before God in a way that's pleasing to Him all the time. If these things are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the full knowledge, back to this full knowledge word, of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're doing these things, he's saying that you are a useful believer in the hands of the Lord and you are fruitful for the Lord. You hunger and thirst for God. Verse 9, for in whom these things are not present, that one is blind, being nearsighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins foundation of genuine repentance Peter says that individual seems to be blind do blind men see blind men don't see spiritually blind men don't see now he's not saying that Peter's not saying that if you're not doing these things that you physically can't see Peter's saying if you don't see these things increasing in your life and why would Peter say this Peter says remember you have the same kind of saving faith that I have Nothing special about my faith. You have the same kind of saving faith that I have. You are granted the same divine power that I was granted. That's what Peter is saying in this passage. I don't have any, anything special from God that, that you don't have. And as all of God's children, if we don't see these things increasing in our life, Peter's saying that one is blind. And perhaps what Peter's saying is that when as a nominal Christian or a confessional Christian only, their repentance wasn't genuine, they aren't experiencing the divine nature in them that allows them to do this in the first place. They don't have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness in the first place. P- Peter is perhaps saying that is true. Being nearsighted, having forgotten. Peter's being very gracious here, right? He, he's not like dropping a hammer blow. He's just saying, listen, you, you need to... You need to examine yourselves. Notice verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and choosing sure. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. Peter's just, 
Peter is saying to believers everywhere who will listen to his, to his epistle, read his epistle and listen, if you don't see the, the outworking of the divine nature within you, and you don't even have an interest to supply moral excellence and knowledge, and you don't even see that within you, you need to check your spiritual pulse, brothers. He's, he's being kind. Be diligent, he says, to make certain of his calling and choosing of you. For in doing these things, you will never stumble. In other words, it's never a bad thing to truly look at this. Do you want entrance into the kingdom of God? Do you truly want entrance into Christ's kingdom? If you genuinely want entrance into Christ's kingdom and you believe that he's coming again and he's going to be establishing a kingdom and you truly want entrance into said kingdom, don't you want to make certain that your repentance lines up with the kind of repentance that Jesus was talking about? I think the obvious answer is absolutely yes. Notice verse 11. For in this way, notice, the entrance into the eternal kingdom. Where does Peter go? Same, same thing. What, what was John preaching? The kingdom. Is hand. Jesus, repent. The kingdom. What's Peter saying? For in this way, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Peter is saying when you can look in the mirror of life and you see that the divine nature that God granted you by a means of a new heart, by, by means of genuine repentance, is, it, is alive in you and you actually hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you can know that's how entrance into that eternal kingdom is possessed. And he's saying, listen, if you don't see it, brothers, examine yourself. Be diligent. Make certain. Because this is the way for entrance into that eternal kingdom. And then to finish it off, he says, therefore, I will... He, this is the pastor's heart of Peter. He says, therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. And have been strengthened in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. And that's what Peter's doing for us all here this morning. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has indicated to me, and I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. Peter's pastoral heart is saying, listen, I know that my time is short. The Lord's revealed this to me. And so even I, I'm, I'm willing to remind you of these truths while present with you and even when absent from you, I pray that you will remember that I challenged you to always be examining to make certain that you're truly in the faith. Peter has a deep love for people and he wants all people everywhere to genuinely repent and to know Jesus Christ like he did. Isn't that good? That's the heart of a man who's recognized the importance of his spirit and who's mourned over his undoneness and has gone to the school of Christ and has learned of his ways for many years afterwards. Peter understands rightly that there's a new hunger and thirst for righteousness that comes with genuine saving faith. And what did Jesus say was true of those? They shall be satisfied. When you're satisfied with something, do you seek remedy elsewhere? No. 
the full knowledge of the gospel of the kingdom and the demands of entrance made by its king to the child of God are not burdensome, but instead actually light. For he has satisfied the longing of our weary soul like only God could do. Completely, completely satisfied. And when you're satisfied like this, you understand without question that you are the most blessed human being that's ever walked planet Earth. Because God gave you a hunger and a thirst for himself, which is the only satisfying cistern from which man can drink. And God made us to be in relationship with him. And that's where we are, brothers and sisters, those who have genuinely repented and we're longing and looking forward to his coming kingdom. Isn't that good? I'm telling you, our American gospel culture needs to hear this kind of a message. And where are they going to hear it? Well, they're not sitting in here today. You are. But they're going to hear it from you. They're going to hear it from the likes of each and every one of us. This is how this message of what genuine repentance looks like gets out into the culture. Unbelievers, the, the church was never designed for the sole exclusive purpose to bring in unbelievers. Contrary to what most big modern churches today are trying to say. The church was established, just read the scriptures, for the believer to show up. They've been out in the world. They're, not of it. they're out there and they're laboring and they're in the midst of spiritual battle. And sometimes they get cut and wearied and wounded and they come to this place to be strengthened and refreshed by the Spirit of God through the fellowship of believers, through the singing of worship to him, and through the teaching of his word. And we're rekindling hearts anew with him so that when we go out those doors, we know we are going out into the battle of doing great commission work. This is how the world's going to know is through the likes of each one of us as we leave this place here today. Let's pray.